All right, welcome to the Lowly Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Jay, and I uh, got some uh, new sound equipment today, so hopefully this will be picking up things a little bit better and uh, uh, be able to, to sound a little bit better, both on the podcast itself and maybe even on the video. We'll see if I can get that sound quality up on that as well uh, on the YouTube video. But either way, we're going to be talking about a curious subject today and one that's uh, really rather controversial, although in my mind it really shouldn't be. Um, we're going to talk about who are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, really just kind of get us started off there. I'm just going to read this passage and uh, without you know, really getting into it, just read the passage for what it is. And uh, in Genesis 6, this is right before the flood. In fact, it implies, as we're going to talk about in verse 5, that this is the reason for the flood, this incident that happens. And so... We get to chapter six. I mean, we've already we've already had the you know the fall uh, in, in Genesis three and the kicked out of Eden. You've got uh, Cain kills Abel in chapter four. That whole the first murder, that whole narrative, and then you get in chapter five the sort of genealogies, both of Cain's lineage and then Seth's lineage, which is the the son that replaces Abel, so to speak, uh, according to Eve. And so you get these lineages, and then you get to chapter six. This really weird sort of odd. Uh, section is really just four verses, and it, it, there's like so much in there. You're, you're you're like I mean, if you were like me, the first time I read that, I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, go back. What what was that? But no, it just goes on, and, and you're going, what in the world was happening there? And so let's look at Genesis chapter six, verses one through four. Or really, I'm going to add verse five as well to give a little bit of the context. But you get uh, chapter 6, verse 1 in Genesis says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, whenever or when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 6, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And then it goes on from there to go into the flood. And then he talks about Noah, and then he goes on from there. And so you've got this really weird sort of section in Genesis 6, talking about these beings, whoever they are, and we're going to talk about the different possibilities, the sons of God, and then the daughters of men, and then some sort of thing called Nephilim, which is, uh, is an actual Hebrew word that just doesn't get translated. They just, that's what they say, transliterates it. They just take the Hebrew word and make it into English spelling uh, because they're not really 100% sure what it means, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today. And so a really, really odd sort of situation here. Well, traditionally speaking, uh, over the last three, sometimes even you know, 3,000, 4,000 years, you've got three main possibilities uh, for what this, uh, this Sons of God, Daughters of Men incident is. Okay? The traditional view, which I'll say is view number one, is that Sons of God are angels, uh, or in this sense, fallen angels, as we'll talk about. But these are angels that have come down from heaven and have cohabitated and had sexual relations with human women and have produced a sort of semi-divine, demigod sort of half-breed 
of race of people called the Nephilim, who were the mighty heroes of old and the men of renown that's mentioned there at the end of verse 4. That's sort of the traditional view. That was the view uh, the early uh, Judaism took. It was definitely the view during Second Temple Judaism, what we call the intertestamental period, that 400 years between the end of the book of of Malachi and the Old Testament and Matthew and the New Testament. There's a 400-year sort of historical gap there. Uh, so we call that the intertestamental period, what, what scholars call the Second Temple Judaism, uh, because that's, of course, when the Second Temple was built, when uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and all came back uh, from, from the Babylonian exile. And so uh, they definitely viewed this as the, the fallen angel sort of story. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, the early church, uh, believe it or not, the New Testament, that is the view that they're taking. We'll talk about some of that. Um, the early church, uh, really up until about the 3rd or 4th century, is really, that was the prevailing view. There really wasn't any other view. That was how they viewed this passage. Uh, there was a, a guy named Julius, I think Julius Africanus, which was an early church father in the 3rd century, is the first one that really kind of proposed something other than that. Uh, and I believe he went off on, uh, this was uh, the king ruler, which is the second view we'll look at in just a minute. Um, and then it wasn't really until Augustine, or Augustine, depending upon how you want to pronounce it, of Hippo, uh, who wrote, uh, especially in his, uh, his sem- uh, seminal work, The uh, City of God, who talks about a different viewpoint. And it's really since Augustine was such an important influence on early Christian thinking, really everybody since him in the 4th century has gone with another view that we'll talk about in just a minute. So this first view, that these are fallen angels, was really the most prevalent view early on, okay? Uh, The second view uh, really comes from uh, Judaism post-Jesus and uh, post-70 AD when Jerusalem falls and the destruction of the temple and and Judaism moves from being uh, a sacrificial, you know, following the law and the covenant of Moses to being more rabbinical in in the synagogues and, and, and more into the teachings of the covenant and the laws. Uh, rather than the actual sacrificial system, because, of course, there's no temple or, or any sacrifices anymore. But the, uh, the Judaism, Judea, gosh, I can't say it, the Jewish, Jewish view of this after the 2nd, 3rd century doesn't take this anymore as fallen angels. They kind of say, well, these are rulers, because there are a couple of passages where it seems to talk about uh, kings or, or rulers being called the sons of God. Uh, David was called a son of God uh, in that sense. And so they say, well, these were rulers who were cohabitating um, with lower women, uh, you know, lower in social standing. And so it was a social issue. Uh, some have even suggested it was a, an issue of polygamy. They said, you know, when it says take of any that they wanted. And so it was, you know, uh, some sort of wickedness of kings taking this, this polygamous sort of position. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one because of the three views, this one to me is the most ridiculous one. I can't, I can't find any uh, connection with the material itself or any traditions that really kind of uh, holds to that position. The third possibility is really the view that Augustine espoused in City of God and really has been the prevailing view from that time in the 4th century until modern age, and it's the Sethite view. Uh, and this view of Genesis 6 says that the sons of God are really those that are of the line of Seth. And remember, Seth was the one that was uh, the, the child that they had, Adam and Eve had, after that was to, quote-unquote, in Eve's words, replace Abel, who was lost to them in murder by Cain. And so the line of Seth gets described in chapter 5, and so the, the proponents of this view will say, well, chapter 5, we're talking about the line of Seth, and then so it, immediately we go into chapter 6, we're still talking about the line of Seth. 
And so they would say the sons of God are the line of Seth and that they were cohabitating with the daughters of men, which in their view is uh, the daughters of Cain's line. And so what you've got is an intermixing of, uh, of uh, two different lines, both the, the righteous line and the unrighteous line of Cain, that are intermixing together and creating uh, you know, rebellious men. There's nothing supernatural going on in this event uh, as according to this view. Um, and like I said, this, since, since Augustine of Hippo, this has been the biggest, most prevailing view of Genesis 6, 1-4, and the sons of God. Um, just one little millions of problems. Um, there is nothing, nowhere, anywhere in this passage that could possibly, linguistically, grammatically, theologically, nothing in this passage that could make you connect the dots between the line of Seth and the line of Cain and sons of God and daughters of men. Nothing. Nothing. And uh, it, it's always blown my mind. I mean, and I actually I have several commentaries uh, on Genesis. Some, um, I, I make it a, I've made it a point since seminary days to go down the list and try to get the top four or five you know, rated commentaries in every book of the Bible. I don't just buy commentary sets or every book in one set. Um, I have, I don't know, four or five of Genesis up there. I have another four or five digital uh, versions on my Logos software, etc., um, that not one of them, not one of them, espoused the traditional supernatural view. They all went with some variation of the uh, kingship thing, which is a weird variation, or most often they went with the Sethite view. Um, and I find that curious because just, I mean, if you're being intellectually honest, just reading the passage as it is, there's nothing in that passage that makes me think this is the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Linguistically, grammatically, if you look back in verse 1, it says, When man, this is Adam, when mankind begins to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Born to who? Man. Mankind. Daughters of mankind. And so it's the same word, that Adam. It's Adam. It means man. And so when you get you know, the sons, or when mankind started to multiply on the earth, Adam, and then you get daughters of man, were attractive in verse 2. It's the same word. So you can't say that this was daughters of mankind in verse 1 and that this, well, no, now we're more specifically talking about daughters of Cain in verse 2. It doesn't make any sense. Number two, nowhere, nowhere do you see the sons of the line, or the line of Cain, I mean, I'm sorry, the line of Seth being described as the sons of God. Nowhere. Not Old Testament, not New Testament, not even an intertestamental outside the Bible. Nowhere is the line of Seth called sons of God. And, and if he was going to, you know, why wouldn't he say the line of Seth here? Why would he say sons of God? It's a, it's a weird sort of statement. Interestingly enough, in all the places where this word, the phrase, uh, B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, are mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, it all refers to angelic beings. Uh, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, uh, Job 36 or 38, I can't remember which one it is. Uh, if you're reading the, the uh, Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Qumran community, so uh, Deuteronomy 32.8, it's son of God's there. Uh, most, most of the versions are following the Masoretic text, which says sons of Israel. There's a whole lot of issues with that, which I don't have time to get into in this particular video. Uh, in Psalm 82, sons of God, and, and, and there are commentators even there that say, oh, well, these sons of God that are mentioned in this divine council setting, that God is in the midst of his divine council among the gods, uh, will say, oh, well, these are human rulers. Well, no, 
it's it's obvious that these are these are angelic beings in Psalm 82, and so they're trying to be consistent, but it still doesn't make any sense. And so, of the three views, the first one, the traditional view, in my mind, and and I, I think it bears out logically, is the correct view. These are angelic, divine, what we call angel beings, who have left their natural state in the spiritual realm, taken on sort of a, a mortal fleshly form, cohabitated with women, and produced offspring by them that were sort of demigod, semi-divine beings, which are called the Nephilim. Now, something that's not in the Bible, uh, but was very influential on the Bible, is a, is a pseudepigraphal work called First Enoch, for, or the Book of Enoch. Uh, the book of Enoch was written probably somewhere around 2nd, maybe even as early as 3rd century B.C. Um, we've actually since found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that originally it was just in Greek, I think is all we had. Uh, but recently in the Qumran community in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've actually found um, a, an Aramaic uh, version of it, which is even older than the Greek version. Uh, and so uh, it's a very, very old document by those standards. And so... We have this old document that's a piece of apocalyptic literature, very similar to Revelation. In fact, there are elements of Revelation. If you're with me on Sunday nights here uh, on Revelation, then uh, you know we've been talking about that. There are elements in the book of Revelation about First Enoch. Um, there are references to First Enoch several times, both in First and Second, mainly in Second Peter, and in the book of Jude, which directly quotes a passage from First Enoch uh, in Jude. Uh, uh, verses 6 and 7. It actually quotes, I mean, word for word there. Oh, I'm sorry, it's a little bit later on in verse 25. Anyway, and so, you know, the, there are passages in the New Testament that are quoting from this. The book of First Enoch, actually in the first several chapters of First Enoch, there's actually a whole lot of stuff in there, uh, but the first several chapters tells this story of a group of divine angelic beings called the Watchers. The Watchers. And these watchers see that the women are attractive and decide to go down and cohabitate with them and have children by them. Um, their leader is called uh, Samyaza or Shemyaza um, the, in, in variant forms of it in, in various places. Uh, sort of another leader among them is a guy called Azazel, uh, who actually, interestingly enough, shows up in the Old Testament in, in uh, Leviticus and Numbers um, and usually gets translated as scapegoat. And uh, that's, that's really a story for another time, but... Uh, it says, you know, when on the Day of Atonement they have two two lambs and or two goats and they they you know draw lots. If one is for Yahweh, one is for God, and then one is for Azazel that they lay their sins upon, put their hands on, lay their sins upon, and send it out into the wilderness for Azazel, the demon that was sort of bound in the wilderness, uh, which all comes out of First Enoch, interestingly enough, or is in there. And so um, you've got this group of fallen angels that are watchers, and they decide to make this plan. They come down on Mount Hermon, which is uh, in northern part of Israel, up where uh, the tribe of Dan would have had its uh, region, uh, the region of Bashan, um, where Og, the giant that had a bed that was like 14 foot long, you know, he was uh, king of that region. Uh, if you get to, you know, um, I want to say Numbers or Deuteronomy when, when you talk about that. And so very, you know, there's this whole story about them coming down, and then uh, Enoch plays, that's why it's called First Enoch, Enoch plays a role in this because the Watchers, you know, realize God's mad at them, and they kind of try to talk to Enoch. It's like, hey, go talk to, you know, God and get him to, you know, not kill us or destroy us, and, um, you know, God's not having it because they have stepped outside the boundaries of what was natural or what was right 
uh, according to God, which is actually a key theme throughout uh, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, that there would be no mixing of things. And in fact, if you get into the Levitical law, you're not supposed to mix two different types of crops in a field. You're not supposed to mix two different types of fabric. You're not supposed to mix all these things together. And so this was a, a case of mixed uh, heritage or mixed nature. Uh, even all the way back in the beginning of Genesis at creation, it says each uh, tree would bear fruit according to its kind and that you weren't supposed to mix those things together. The animals weren't supposed to mix together. Uh, they would each bear after their own kind. And so for an angel who is primarily of a divine status in a spiritual realm to leave its first nature or first estate in order to take uh, you know, wives from the mortal realm or the physical realm was against God's nature and against his created order. And so that was a huge sin. And these angels are actually uh, bound up in chains in darkness uh, in what gets called the abyss. And if the abyss sounds familiar, well, you're, you're right. It's from Revelation chapter 9. This abyss that opens up and these demonic things that are like locusts come out. That's probably a reference to these particular angels that are going to be released in the end times at some point. Um, in uh, the New Testament, you've got a couple of places. Like I said, First Peter um, makes sort of slight reference to these guys. And uh, I'll just turn there first. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 19. It's talking about Jesus who died, suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In verse 19, in which he, that being Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. And so it's kind of a, kind of a, a subtle reference there, and you may not catch it at first, uh, but it's a weird sort of statement. When you're reading that, you're like, wait, Jesus went in, you know, he was dead, and he went kind of into Hades, and he preached and proclaimed uh, to the spirits in prison. And I've heard preachers say, well, he's preaching to the Old Testament saints and he's, you know, setting them free to go to heaven because and that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about specifically about some group of people that sinned or were held in prison in the days of Noah when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. So it's a direct reference back to these fallen angels who are bound in prison in chains of darkness. Uh, go to Second uh, uh, Peter. You get a, that a, a more direct reference here in Second Peter, starting in ver, uh, chapter two, verse four. It says, "For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly." If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and then he goes on and on from there. And so he makes reference to these angels who did not, uh, you know, they sinned. He cast them into the word that in the English is hell. It's actually Tartarus in Greek. It's the only use of that word in the New Testament. And Tartarus was a particular... Uh, a particularly bad area. It was a, a, the chains in darkness below the the, uh, the waters of the earth. It's where in Greek mythology the Titans were cast uh, after they rebelled against the Olympian god Zeus and all those guys. 
And so he's, he's kind of borrowing that, that Greek sort of idea of being bound in chains in darkness in, the, in a great deep hole, an abyss in the earth. And so, and so the, and, and some have even suggested, and I'm a big fan of all of these um, ancient mythological ideas, I think all have you know, some basis in the truth, and I think they're just variations of the truth that kind of get told out. And so, he, and then he compares it. Well, why are they chained in darkness? Why, you know, how did they sin? Well, it's getting compared to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, sexual misconduct, an unnatural sexual uh, activity. And so, that's what's getting connected there. And then, once again, in Jude, in Jude, uh, verses 6 and 7 here, it says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, or as some translations say, did not keep to their first estate, our first nature, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's at the end times. That's why Revelation chapter 9. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serving as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so, once again, you get that same kind of idea as from Second Peter, um, this is the idea that these angels are being bound in chains in darkness until the end. And the sin was because they dared leave the proper nature of things and cohabit with human women in order to produce this offspring. So let's talk about that offspring. Um, there is some question about whether the Nephilim are the offspring of these uh, angels and, and human women, or if it's just saying that they actually existed in the day, because linguistically it's a little, little uh, ambiguous here, grammatically. Uh, in verse 4 of chapter 6 it says, uh, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. And so just linguistically as you're reading that, it could mean this is just kind of a time marker, it's kind of a placeholder to say, okay, to give you a time frame of when these angels came down and cohabitated with women, it was when the, the giants were on the earth, or when the Nephilim were on the earth. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but I think reading from it, it, it seems to follow, because it says, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and bore children to them. I think it's the uh, grammatical connection, to me at least, is clear, although I would say you could make a, a, a better argument for that than the Sethite view of the sons of God. Uh, and some people still still kind of uh, quibble about that as well. So the question then comes, well, what, are, what does the word Nephilim mean? And uh, this has been a source of contention for uh, Hebrew scholars because they're trying to find the root Hebrew word behind Nephilim. Uh, the the L-I-M uh, ending is a plural, so it's really it's Nephil or Nephal, is the is the Hebrew root word, and what does that word mean? Well, it's if it's nafal, it's the the uh, Hebrew word for to fall, and so some have suggested, well, this means the fallen ones, which you know that kind of fits, or it is often used uh, to refer to um, an army that would fall upon their enemies in battle. So it could be those that fall upon, uh, in the sense of attacking or, or like a you know a marauding horde coming upon. Uh, which does seem to fit with uh, the end of verse 4 when it says these were mighty men, Gaborim is the word there, these were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown or men of the name, Shem. And so, um, you know, that, that one's probably more likely than just fallen ones. However, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser has since um, brought this out and done, done extensive work on this. 
uh, believes that the Hebrew word, root of the word is wrong, um, and because if you anybody knows anything about Hebrew, and if you don't, let me tell you, Hebrew is all consonants. There are no vowels in Hebrew. So really, what you have with the the root there in the fill or in the fall is the n p, you know, and then the l. That's it, and, and you don't have the, the the you know the e or the i or any of the vowels in there. Those get added in. Uh, kind of like chapters and verses that got added in in the Middle Ages. The, the vowel points in uh, Hebrew language got added in much later. The original older manuscripts don't have those things. And so you're really kind of trying to figure it out from the context. Well, we're so far removed from the context, and even the guys that wrote the vowel points didn't really kind of know which, which root to go with. There's, a, there's an Aramaic root of this word uh, that is connected to the word giant, uh, which is actually how the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint translates this as uh, gygos or giant. Um, and it fits with what goes on later. The only other reference to the word Nephilim in the uh, Old Testament that we have is in the book of Numbers when the spies go into the land. And if you remember that story, Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report, but the other ten spies come back with a negative report. And the negative report they give is that there are Nephilim in the land, and we are like grasshoppers to them, and so we seemed as to ourselves. Uh, and so the idea is that these are giants. They're you know, tall, mighty you know, warrior people that are in the land, and we're terrified of them is what they were saying. And so that fits the idea. These are giants, and that is uh, from the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That is what they uh, you know, define this as, as giants, the Septuagint. And all of these things are much older than the Masoretic text, which was written... Uh, our, you know, at least the extant version we have is somewhere around 7th or 8th century A.D. Uh, the Masoretic text is about a thousand years you know, newer to us than the much older and more accurate, in my mind, documents of the Septuagint and the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. And so giant is probably what it means, which makes sense. That also fits in with the, the, the traditions of uh, intertestamental period, Second Temple Judaism, the Book of First Enoch. Um, the Book of Jubilees, uh, you know, the um, Lives of the Patriarchs, all of these, these uh, intertestamental uh, pseudepigraphal works mention giants uh, in that sense. And certainly we know there were giants in the Old Testament times that, that the Israelites had to battle. Um, of course, everybody knows, or most everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, Goliath the really tall giant guy who it says who was descended from the Nephilim. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, we miss a lot of the other references in there. There is all sorts of references to uh, men who are tall like oak trees, or you know, tall like the cedars of Lebanon, and, and uh, you know, mighty men, and then had like uh, spears that were the size of a weaver's beam, and, and, uh, and you know, it, there's all sorts of references all throughout the Old Testament about this giant clans that were a part of that. And so Genesis being the, the book of origins is giving you the origin of where these giant clans came from. They came at the, from the, the, uh, the fallen angels that cohabitated with women and produced this sort of semi-divine uh, race of people for which, according to Enoch and other intertestamental testamental literature, is the main reason for the flood. Now, that's not to say that human wickedness was not the issue. Uh, there's actually sort of another parallel idea in this story from the Enochian literature, which says that not only do they cohabitate with the women and produce this, these Nephilim, but also part of the sin of the Watchers is that they taught humanity um, 
unnatural or, or uh, forbidden knowledge, uh, sort of like the idea of Prometheus in the Greek uh, myths and whatnot, who was you know bound and chained and uh, uh, tormented by um, Zeus because he dared give mankind the the knowledge of fire. And so it's a similar kind of uh, idea here. And so you get like Azazel, for example, who teaches men how to make weapons and how to make warfare on one another, uh, teaches women um, makeup and seductive arts, teaches astrology and idolatry and all of these things. So really what you've got is the proliferation of wickedness and evil and basically uh, accelerating the sinfulness of man. And so... It's not that man is not guilty, it's just that these guys came along and made it worse, so much worse. And, and, and so that by the time you get to Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Um, it's because all of these things took place. And so, um, yeah, I think that's probably where I'll leave it for today. Uh, there's like way, way more stuff than I can really get into in my little short 30-minute videos, but... Uh, um, you know, maybe we'll we'll revisit this subject another time. But I wanted to talk about this a little bit because it is going to come up um, in our Revelation study for my church. And uh, so, any of my church people that are listening to this, that uh, wanted to give you a little bit of background before we get into this, uh, we'll also get into this in um, when we talk about my sermon series in uh, 2022 on uh, spiritual warfare. And so, but anyway, that's where I'll leave you guys for this week, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Have a good week.